my name's Colby, and I serve as the teaching elder here. Um, I grew up in a small town in Oklahoma that's actually not that much different in size um, to Bayfield. And um, it's, it's fascinating to me to, to go back home. And we're trying to plan this summer, because um, we didn't really get to travel in 2020, uh, back home to Oklahoma, um, to plan to go back to our family reunion, um, to go back and spend some time in family. And I can remember um, after I had left my hometown and went to the University of Oklahoma and went on with my wife and went to go do some other things, after a season of life, I came back uh, to my hometown to a football game, to what we call homecoming. Big event, right? Like you, you come back uh, and, you know, you, you go to the football game and there's uh, corsages, right? You know what corsages are? The things that like the, you don't know what a corsage is? I think the size of your head in Texas with like ribbons coming out costs $400. It's the letter jacket of homecoming, all right? And so people wear the corsages. Do they not do that here? What is it called? Mums? All right, this illustration just tanked right there. All right? I don't know what I'm talking about, all right? This thing made of ribbons that you wear to homecoming, all right? And you face paint and you come in. And I realized I had friends that didn't grow up in a small town where football's a cult and they, they don't understand that. So when we pull in and they're still playing ACDC 20 years later, all right? Guns and Roses, we're coming in and bodies and Chris Mums or whatever. And there's things that you're walking into that town. It's almost like you... You, you need to explain to the person what you're getting into coming to my hometown, right? And you, you go into that environment. I don't know uh, what your hometown experience is like or stuff, but for me, I had been a total hellion pretty much since I had left. And so to me to come back, it was almost like one of those things that as I'm walking up to the bleachers of the game, I see people that I was not prepared to see. And there were conversations that I had not had to kind of resolve where I was at in life. A lot of times when we leave our hometown, we leave with one reputation. We go and a lot of us change. We grow. We have different experiences. We become a different version of the same person. We come back and those people don't know anything about that change. So it's one person, two versions. And... It's just an outdated version of who you are. You've had all kinds of experiences. You've met other people, right? You've done other things. For me, I had met Jesus in my college years and really started following the Lord after that time. So when I came back, there was a lot of really weird encounters. And for, for some of us, we, if, you, if you had to choose between going to the far reaches of the corners of the earth or having to go back to your hometown to a 20-year reunion, you might as well just go, send me to the other part of the earth, right? Like you would rather go and be among strangers than some of these people. Now, some of you, that, that's not the case. Like you peaked in high school, you're like, best years of my life. Can't wait to go back, right? But for, for others, if you go back and see maybe family that's there, you may not go to the grocery store for fear of who you might bump into. There's some track record there. There's some history there. And so for us, because our, our, our hometown, our old stomping grounds probably mean all kinds of things for us, 
places of maybe success or maybe places of failure. There can be this weird thing about going home. Let me say this. is that Jesus doesn't shy away from that or run away from that. He's going to press into that experience. And he's going to take his disciples along with him. So let me just say this. Whatever um, negativity that can come from the place you grew up and whatever kind of awkwardness that comes there, Jesus goes there. And he wants his disciples to go with him. And I think there's some key things let's point out from that today, okay? So that's where our text is at today. Let's pray, uh, if you would. Let's bow our hearts and minds. Um, if God doesn't help us, we ain't understanding any of this stuff. So um, if you could just maybe bow your heads and hearts in a posture of dependence. Dear Heavenly Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Heavenly Father, begin in us. Dig up in us whatever you want to dig up. Stuff we may have locked away and hidden and buried. God, would you make us um, open in ways we wouldn't be open without your Holy Spirit at work in us. God, this is your sacred word. Eternal, unchangeable, powerful refining, flawless. It shows us the way. Would you come and um, make Jesus clear here? Make what Jesus is doing clear so that we might rightly respond to it. God, would you come and teach your word all over again and illuminate it to our hearts and minds? God, we're so dull. We're so distracted. We're hard of hearing. And so we just confess our great need for you. Come be the pastor, be the teacher. Shepherd us in all the ways that we need it. God, it's for your beautiful name and for your glory that we pray these things. Everyone said, amen. Uh, Mark chapter 6, if you've got a Bible, flip open. We've been going through the Gospel of Mark, authored by John Mark. Uh, and I want to pick up right there. Um, Chapter 6, <clears throat> it's only taken us like half a year to get this far. He went away from there. Okay, pause. Where is the place that he's going away from? Now, I like things about John Mark here because a lot of times in the gospel accounts of Matthew, Luke, and John, you don't get this connective tissue that tells you information about what happens between one account and another. So what I, what I mean by that is oftentimes in Scripture... The author connects things um, as the Holy Spirit led them to do, but it may not be chronological. In Mark, we get connective tissue between the stories that help us kind of string together uh, a little bit of chronological context. So I've said this before, like when we talked about the story of passing through the storm, they leave a place where thousands of people likely are cheering them on and welcoming them and want them. Jesus gets in a boat with his boys, matter of fact, a fleet of boats, and purposely puts them through a storm. On the other side of the storm, you've got to be thinking, well, if that's thousands of people, there's going to be tens of thousands of people on the east side of the lake. But what we learn is, there's not. There's one guy. A demon-possessed naked dude. And so God takes him from one place of like, okay, everybody loves you over here, through a storm, to get one. Which is like the total Jesus thing to do, where he leaves the 99 and he goes after the one. 
Okay? He leaves there, and we get that in the thing. He leaves that side of the lake. He comes back to the other side. Thousands of people gather again. And instead of like kind of stories about how he engaged the masses, we get selective accounts of individuals of Jairus and the woman with the issues, right? Not the only woman with issues, but she's at least one, all right? And so we, so we kind of get into these individual accounts. And people at the previous place where Jesus has just been in chapter 5 believe in him. And they welcome him. And they want him. And they accept him. At least some do, right? Some are reaching out in faith. You're seeing healing come. It's connected to teaching about faith over fear. And so they're, they're entering into that. I, <clears throat> Let's just maybe make an observation about us that's a little different than Jesus. Where people love us and clap for us and appreciate us, we're real slow to leave that place. Right? Like where, where people appreciate you and value you and, and care about you, it's like, it's really, really hard for us to leave there. Especially to go to somewhere where we don't know how people will like us, receive us, treat us, or welcome us. Jesus leaves a place where people want him to be, and he goes to a place from there. Now, it goes from there, and he came to his hometown, the motherland, the Patrice. This is where he grew up. Now, um, this gets into a little bit about um, where Jesus is from. Now, the scriptures teach, in accordance with Old Testament prophecy, that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And, but he was raised and moved up to Nazareth as a child, um, which it, we, we don't have a ton of information about what happens from the time of Jesus' birth to the time of which he does his public ministry, probably his late 20s, early 30s, okay? But here's what we do know. In, chap, in, in uh, the Gospel of Luke, we know that when he's 12, he goes up to the feast, right? This is where I'm coming full circle, Jen, Right? And he goes up to the feast, and it says that his parents took him up there. They left. They got an entourage. The family is caravanning, right? And they're going back home up to Nazareth. They get a couple days down the road, and they realize, where's Jesus? Which is a total parenting move, right? God's like, who could I entrust this, my son to to raise him when he's 12? How about Mary and Joseph? They're going to forget him at one point, Right? So they look around and they realize Jesus isn't with them. And they turn around and they go back to Jerusalem. And they say, Jesus, like, what are you doing? And they find him in the temple with the teachers of Scripture, asking them questions and giving them answers. Right? And they ask Jesus, like, what are you doing? And Jesus says, why are you looking for me? Don't you know I'm about my father's business? <clears throat> Which, pause, in my home, you get smoked for answers like that. Right? If I lose you in Walmart for three hours, and I find you, and you come and it's like, why are you looking for me? You know what I mean? You know I'm going to be in the toy aisle. <laughs> my wife will talk through her teeth. You know, like when moms like, close their mouth and they talk through their teeth. Like, you about to get worked in the car. All right? You're, you're going to take that out. I get, he's the son of God, I get it, alright? So, but in Luke's account, it says that he went home from there and was submissive to them. And we just skip over that. But do you understand 
that he submitted as a righteous child was commanded in the Old Testament law to submit. Like we want to talk about how Jesus kept prophecies or he kept righteousness and truth in the Old Testament law, but we skip over the fact that as a child, he had an obligation to keep the law to his parents. Let me put it to you another way. This is the most boring miracle that you don't care about. It's the most boring miracle. Like he heals someone that's blind. Awesome. Calms the storm. Awesome. He was an obedient child. Okay, cool. Right? Until you're a parent and you realize, you know what? This is a miracle. (laughs) Right? Like this is full on. Like, so let's just say it like this. Kids, every time you're talking back to your parents and when they're trying to lead you to God and you're disruptive and you're rebellious, you're not being like Jesus. Right? And by the way, your parents were just like that. Jesus is unique and we worship him because he was a submissive child in ways none of you chumps are in here. Right? He submitted and went to Nazareth. Get the majesty of this. He created the universe, including the DNA of his parents, and he's going to submit to them as a righteous child. That's wild to me, man. And so we get this silent period, but it's really not silent. What he's doing is he's he's obeying the word. And I know that's a boring miracle, right? But Luke tells us he was submissive to his parents and he went home and he was submissive to them. And it's this no teenage rebellion. It's a, a submission to God. And I, so here's the thing. Jesus goes home. Which should stick out to us if you've been tracking with us through the Gospel of Mark. Because he just met the demoniac on the other side of the sea. And he told him to go home. Right? Go to your hometown. Go to your family and friends. Go to them and, and, and tell them what they've done. He's already been in previous chapters talking about how his family tried to seize him. They tried to put a wet blanket on the things that God had ordained in the person and work of Christ. So they tried to seize him. He's already interacted with that a little bit saying, my, my family is those that do the will of my father. So we've already got a little taste of it outside of the hometown as the family's trying to slow Jesus' role. Like, Jesus, you need to be a little less Jesus. Right? You know what the Jews do to people that cause, that rock the boat? You know what those Italians, those mafia people up in Rome do when people rock the boat? It's like, dude, you need to lay low, Jesus. So we've already gotten the family trying to slow his role, and we talked about that in previous thing. Now, here's a, a little bit of a theological openness here. Um, turn over in your Bible to Luke chapter 4. Because some would say these are possibly... Similar accounts or same account, uh, but most theologians will say that Jesus has already went home once. And I think this is pretty key. Luke chapter um, 4, starting in verse 16. This is the, what theologians would say was Jesus' first visit home with, without disciples. Okay, um, And he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom... He went to synagogue on the Sabbath day. By the way, Jesus regularly attended church. And he stood up to read. Right? Which, I don't know, who read, who read the scripture today? I didn't even pay it. Was it you, Toby? You, you so second rate. Imagine having Jesus get up and read the scripture. Well, I'm just going to read my own word here, people. No big deal. Right? 
He stood up to read the scriptures. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Which is hilarious to me because when I was thinking of this, they didn't have a codex, which is what we do with our books here flipping over. They had a scroll. So you just see, this is old school scroll. You know what I mean? It's not like this, all right? So he undoes the scroll of Isaiah, finds the place, and he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering sight to the blind, and to set at liberties those that are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is a messianic Old Testament passage. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him. By the way, if you ever get up on stage and you pause for like 30 seconds, it feels like 30 years. All right? He reads the scroll, rolls it up, goes and sits on the front row, and every single eye is burning a hole in the back of his head. Do you see what's happening? Right? And they're just fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And nobody else get to preach like that. And all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. So there's, a, there's an interaction of um, like the seed that fell on the soil that received it in a moment with joy. But when tribulation and persecution arises, they fall away on account of the word. There's a sense in which they receive it and they're like, oh, this is, this is great teaching. This preacher is amazing. I love to connect. I love that preacher. Right? Hold on, though. And all spoke well. Men marveled at his gracious words that were coming in his mouth. And he said, Is this not Joseph's son? That's going to be repeated in our second account that's going to happen in Mark. And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. And what we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here at home, in your hometown as well. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah... And the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and the great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Now, we may not be catching all this geography that's happening here, but he basically said one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament in a time when it was like hard knocks went to a Gentile. Because God's people weren't particularly good at listening. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, another great prophet. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. You ever been in one of those church meetings? Super fun. And they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down from the cliff. You know your preaching's good when they're trying to take you out back after. You know what I mean? This is what they did to Jesus last time he came to town. But passing through their midst, he went away because Jesus is going to die right on time. You ain't killing Jesus outside of Jerusalem and outside of the sovereign plan of God. And I, I don't know how that works, but Jesus is just like, no, I'm good. I'm going on to my next thing. Flip back to our passage here. This is unbelievable. So, chapter 6, which chronologically, if we, we understand that as the first encounter, 
He's done ministry. He's went out. He's healed thousands. The reputation has grown. He's known as a teacher. He's known as a preacher. He has already called the disciples to himself. He went away from there where they loved him, and he came to his hometown. Let's just go ahead and assume they might not love him there. Right? And his disciples followed him. Hold right there. Underline that if you can. His disciples followed him. First time, no mention of disciples. He goes in alone. Second mention, he says his disciples, they followed him. In the next passage, Jesus, in this part of Mark, in verse 7 through 13, Jesus is going to send his disciples out, and he's going to say to them, there's going to be people that, quote, will not receive you. There's going to be people, quote, that will not listen to you. Before he sends his disciples out to be rejected, he shows them what walking through rejection and dealing with rejection looks like for him. He takes his disciples to the one place he knew he would experience rejection. And he can show his disciples, here's the thing, I want you to see me get rejected and see how I walk and deal with rejection so that when you face it, you can walk through it the way I walk through it. Why is this happening? It's because Jesus does not want his disciples to be fragile. He wants them to be resilient. He does not want his disciples to be fragile. He wants them to be resilient. This is the problem with some of how we're raising our kids today. They're fragile. They're like glass. If they fall off of the table, they break into a thousand pieces and you can't put them back together. You got to make them tough where they're like Tupperware where they bounce. You hear me? And sheltering your kids from every hard thing that's going to happen in life is a disservice to them. More important than developing them as scholars, more important than any, is teaching them to have spiritual grit. It is a lost art, toughness. Jesus is not wanting his disciples to wither and fold under the pressure of rejection. And so he's going to show them how to deal with rejection. He's going to walk through it. He's, think about this. He's going to take his boys to his hometown so that they can see people say no to him. Not believe in him. I mean, get the security of Jesus here. Because I know a lot of us, we ain't doing this. Right? So this kind of opens up... This opens up another question, right? Or maybe a whole other reality. Every single one of us has been rejected. Someplace in our life, in our journey, they didn't want us on the team... We weren't involved with the club, right? They didn't want you there. You were not allowed in that circle, right? You were ostracized, separated. And this can go way deep for us, right? Like we can, we can take this down for some of us grew up in homes where our parents abandoned us. 
And the very people that should have been a springboard in our lives to move us out into what God has called us to in our purposes are the people that cared the least amount about us. And this picks up what we were talking before. It's like, for some of us, that rejection that we had as a kid followed us the rest of our lives and we struggled to trust people ever again. And I don't know what's going to happen with our kids today where mom is scrolling on a phone just wanting the kids to leave them alone. Or dad is pursuing hobbies and addictions but has no time or interest in his, his kids. Like we got a generation of kids that are being raised by parents who don't care about them. And let me pause here for a second. If you got parents, kids, listen to me, that care about you, right? Taking you on a hike, taking you out to eat, investing in you. You don't understand it yet, but you have a treasure. If you've got a dad speaking truth to you, trying to teach you the Bible, you've got a treasure. If you've got a mama that cares about you, you don't understand it yet, but you've got a treasure. A lot of us grew up in a place where even if our dad was in the home, a lot of times their heart and their mind was somewhere else and we grew up feeling a sense of abandonment and rejection that made us look for acceptance anywhere else. I feel like I've only counseled a thousand college girls who looked for acceptance in some college-age male idiot because she never got it from her daddy and she didn't know that she had it from the Lord. I'm going to tell you, we live in reaction to rejection. Some of us in here have went through a divorce. We've been cheated on, been lied to. And we've, we've struggled to find our identity after that divorce. We, we live in reaction to that rejection, not into what God says we are or who God created us to be or who God saved us to be. We live in a lot of rejection. Rejection is one of the most powerful tools by which Satan controls us. Amen or oh me? There's things you won't do for the kingdom because you're afraid of someone rejecting you. Let me back it up a little less serious. Even when you were a young person and you wanted to talk to the opposite sex, you talked to way less girls or guys because you were afraid they might reject you, right? Anybody still remember asking someone out on their first date? Palms get sweaty, right? Going to prom, you got to ask someone. I read this crazy statistic. So I have a buddy that's in research psychology and stuff. And he sent me a thing about um, research that they did on a college campus about um, young males, average males. They just took random guys in the class. You had no distinctive features of that they were good-looking or tall or had money or anything, and they had them go out on campus and just ask girls uh, for their phone number to go on a date. And they wanted to see at what frequency did you, could you just talk to someone, ask them for their number, ask them on a date that they would say yes. And the research came back that like 7 out of 10, 70% gave them the number. And said, yes, I would be open to going on a date. Now, was it a good number? 
we know ladies. Some of those numbers, five, 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 all right? Okay, I don't know about the numbers, but the fact that home, like these random dudes who are probably studying psychology, all right? Not the most <clears throat> manly of the degrees. All right, so they're out there, seven out, seven out of 10. If you bat seven out of 10 in like baseball, you're like the real deal, all right? Seven out of 10. The, the researcher said, the one thing I took away from this study is, if I would have known that seven out of 10 girls that I asked on a date would say yes, I would have never graduated. <laughs> but what, and I think women don't understand this, what men are trying so hard to do is to overcome their fear of rejection, to get up enough courage to pursue a female, right? And so I, I just come to this. It's like, do you understand the power that rejection has over us? And how Jesus wants to dismantle its power over us so that we're free. There are things that you and I are scared to death to do because we're afraid of rejection. Jesus is going to walk headlong into rejection. And he wants to see his disciples see him walk through it. Because Jesus wants us to overcome rejection. He wants us to conquer it. That when you don't fit in, you can be okay. Here's a little uh, just tip for you, Christian. The Bible's going to be clear. You are not created in Christ Jesus to fit in. You are not. You were created by God to stand out. Right? If you look just like the world, what you preaching to the world? We are called to be different. And if we are going to do that faithfully, we just cannot shut down the first time that someone rejects us, says no to us, or pushes back. And so Jesus, as a good disciple maker, is going to show them how to deal with rejection. He's going to walk into a small town, which if you grew up in a small town, you get this, sometimes can have small minds, all right, who think they know everything. And he's going to walk them into this town where they are, uh, they're not going to be on board with who he is and what he's doing. Verse 2, and on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished. This is a, a negative astonishment. Saying, same exact word that we'll have um, in um, chapter or verse six of the same chapter, his astonishment. And on the Sabbath, again, teach that many who heard were astonished. Look at some of the um, the questions. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? They're not denying the the works of Jesus, the preaching of Jesus. They're denying the source of it. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? That's a shot at potentially the virgin birth. You would never in Jewish culture refer to someone as the son of their mother. And so maybe they're making a little hint at the fact that he was, we would say, born of a virgin. Maybe they're asking other questions about his birth. The brother of James, if you're familiar in church, you know this James. He's the half-brother of Jesus, um, leader in the book of Acts of the early church. Um, it's fascinating that we see his um, family not believe in him, then come after the resurrection to believe in him in such a way that James is going to be brutally murdered 
for saying that Jesus, his half-brother, is Lord. He's also the author of the book of James and Joseph and Judas. You know him as well. We went through the book of Jude. Again, Jude is an abbreviation of the name Judas here. Kind of after the Gospels, kind of early church, not everybody was just throwing that Judas name around on their kids, right? <clears throat> That's a joke didn't land. Okay, Jude. Jude eventually dies for his brother as well, writes the epistle of Jude and Simon. And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. This is the word uh, scandalamea. It's where we get the word scandal. Jesus is either the cornerstone of your life or he's a scandal. He's a rock of stumbling that you can't get over. And it says they took offense at him. They were astonished. Where did he get this? How did he get this? They were astonished at his teaching, just like the temple guard. When they sent the temple guard to arrest Jesus, they came back to the Pharisees and said, no one ever spoke like this man. They heard the teaching, and there was a way in which they interacted with it, like the seed in Mark 4, 16 and 17, but there's a way in which they didn't grow roots and bear fruit from it. Here's kind of what I think is the problem. He's a carpenter. Uh, the, the Greek word is tecton. It's where we get the word architect. Architecton is like a chief builder. An, a carpenter could mean um, someone who works with wood. It could mean a stonemason, a shipbuilder. It can even mean a physician. It has a bit of a range of meaning. We get the word technology. So if you work like Aaron does in technology, tecton is where we get that word for a builder, right? Uh, most of us would understand that Jesus was most likely a stonemason primarily, um, even though there's historical accounts that he made like yokes for oxen made out of wood and other objects. Um, but that's outside of the Bible. So they're basically saying, here's the problem with Jesus. He's blue, too blue collar. Like this dude works with his hands and now he's got mighty miracle working power coming out of those hands. Like he's a little too blue collar for me. Jesus went to trade school. That, I, like I grew up with Jesus playing soccer and he used to work on my barn. You telling me homeboy that wears overalls it's got some sort of, like, where did he get this teaching? It's a source question. Here's basically the idea. I don't know how to say this any other way. He didn't go to seminary. Like, he didn't go to seminary, and he didn't go through the normal channels of education. He didn't go to college. He didn't get his Ph.D. Like, look at his credentials, and look at mine, and, like, we're from the same place, and so... If you've grown up in a small town, you can understand this, that some people that begin to rise or to begin to become a big thing inside of town, people will start to pull that person back down, not because of that person, but because it makes me feel better if I can yank you back down. Church, let me tell you something. Not everybody's rooting for you. Not everybody's cheering for you to succeed. Some people want you to fail because it makes them feel better. He looks across and says, we grew up in the same town. How can that person become great when I'm not great? He's a carpenter. He didn't go to school. I didn't go to school. What, why does he get to be the rabbi, the teacher? Look at him. He's got disciples. He's rolling in a town with an entourage. Now, this gets into a bigger question, maybe about credentials, that I, I want to kind of just breach on if you allow me to take a rabbit trail. One thing is, we have great seminaries in our, we're a part of a Southern Baptist network and denomination. We have some great seminaries inside of our 
denomination that are about preaching the word, preserving the word. And I'm thankful for those seminaries because there are scholars that are called to that, that fight intellectual scholarly battles that us in the church very rarely even know about. And they spend their whole life academically fighting for the kingdom of God. And I appreciate that. On the other side of that, there is a thing about seminaries cannot anoint you to preach. You can go through and get a PhD at a seminary and still not be called of God and anointed by God to pastor and to preach and to do all kinds of things. Because seminary is not a replacement for the Holy Spirit or discipleship. And I promise you, as one that has been there, there's tons of people who are going to seminary with, to get what they can only get from God. Now, let, let me say this for a second. Inside the church, we have always had highly educated people and people that were work with their hands. Look at how Jesus calls a Peter who's a fisherman. And when he preaches, it says these uneducated men, even people hearing his preaching knew he was uneducated, but they noted that he had been with Jesus. Do you remember that? On the other side of that, he also gets him the apostle Paul, who is one of the most highly educated individuals in his country, who studied under Gamaliel, which is the top scholar of his day, and he's going to use the Apostle Paul to write two-thirds of the New Testament once he gets a hold of his heart. I hate, and I use the word, I hate inside the church that either we hate intellectualism or we hate worshiping God with our mind or we look down upon brothers that are just simple and faithful. Like, God has called different people inside the church to do different things. And we need both. Let me tell you how I know we need both. Look at where the Presbyterian and the Methodist denomination are right now. Their seminaries got took over, and they began to ship their clergy out to get educated at these seminaries that denied the Bible, denied the gospel, denied the Holy Spirit. Then they came back into churches, and their denominations are bleeding people and ripping apart because they didn't have scholars that fought these battles that you and I don't, oftentimes in the church don't even know about. Do you hear me? On the other side, we say, well, we, we don't need seminaries. We just need plain preachers. My problems that came from the Church of Christ and the Campbellites is the same thing where they say, well, we don't need no, no, no creed but the Bible. Okay, well, that is a creed. No creed but the Bible is a creed. Or this, where do you think, not to talk about our friends next door, where do you think Joseph Smith denied church history, orthodoxy, systematic theology. Like, there's things in which the people are, had to fight with Joseph Smith. That's where Mormonism comes from. A first-year Greek student in 2021 can point out the Greek errors that brought forth the Jehovah's Witness movement. A bunch of guys coming in trying to translate Greek, and they made simple errors in translating the text, and they started a cult. Do you understand there's a balance to what we're doing here? Here's what they're going to say about Jesus, though. He's not credentialed. He didn't go to the right seminary. He didn't study under the right thing. Yes, son, but he is the word of God. He's, he's the subject, not the student. He's the word of God. But they trip over this, and this is what they're going to trip over. He's too ordinary. 
have you heard the, uh, the proverb or the saying that familiarity breeds contempt? It's because they're so familiar with him. They think they know him so well that they got nothing else to learn from him. Zillions of people come to church all the time thinking they know Jesus, they know all the Bible, they know all this, they know all that, and they come to church week after week and they learn absolutely nothing. Because, goodness sakes, they know it all. Their familiarity breeds contempt. He's too, they cannot look through the veil of his ordinariness into the divine that is at work in him. Familiarity breeds contempt. So here's the understatement. I'm going to say it. There is more to Jesus than meets the eye, but they can't get over it. There's more to Jesus that meets the eye, and their familiarity with Jesus made it harder, not easier, for them to listen to him. My goodness, I, look around this church. Would you look at the people in here? It's just ordinary people, right? What is this made out of? Wood over here? It's ordinary. It's a building. We could put up a metal building, right? Look at these chairs. It's just ordinary stuff. What are you guys playing? C notes up here? These are ordinary notes, right? D minors? I don't know. I have no idea about music. That was clear. All right. <clears throat> right? This is, I wear this shirt on Tuesdays. It's not a Sunday shirt. Isn't there something about coming to church where it can be so familiar that we, we lose our awestruck wonder at the majesty of what's really about going on here? The stuff that's beyond... Man looks to the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. My goodness. <clears throat> Here's the thing. Uh, they look at it, and is this not the carpenter? And they took offense at him. Scandalemei. And verse 4, Jesus said to them, this proverb that exists both within Jewish literature and within pagan literature, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives in his own household. Verse 5, and he could do no mighty work there except he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Now this is not Jesus incapable of doing a mighty work. This is Jesus, verse 6, and he marveled because of their unbelief. This is Jesus looking at their unbelief and he's not going to condone their unbelief with signs and miracles. We've already seen, as we talked about in the last couple of weeks, faith is what makes us able to receive the power of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus is all the time, even in the woman with the issue of blood in Jairus, he wants to connect faith and his power as an illustration of what happens when faith meets the word of God. Okay, And he's, they are unbelieving, and so he is not going to co-sign on their unbelief by manifesting his power and doing things like he's going to do previous in the last chapter. So here's the thing. Next verse, I think, is one of the most discouraging verses um, in the Bible. And he went about among the villages teaching. Here's another way of saying that. He left. He went somewhere else. Few. Just a few. Nothing mighty. Nothing mighty. Because of unbelief. Church, I want to say this. Faith is powerful. And in that same in that same breath, I want to say, unbelief is powerful. Do you understand that unbelief is just alternate belief? It's not the absence of belief. It's actually an alternate belief. One of the things that I 
encourage Christians to do all the time is to doubt your doubts with the same ferocity that you doubt your beliefs. Because if our beliefs are truly on the Word of God, we purify them by removing the muck and the mire with doubting them until we get down to what the Bible says and what the Word of God is. We like to think about unbelief as the absence of belief. It's not. They have an alternate belief about Jesus. You either He's either the Son of God, which the start of this book said, that this account is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's the Christ, He's the Messiah, or to you, He's just a carpenter. See, it's not a matter of the absence of belief, it's alternate belief. Church, unbelief is incredibly powerful. It's incredibly powerful. Humans are created to operate on belief. You have never met an atheist, an agnostic, a Buddhist, a Muslim. You've never met a human that didn't operate on faith. They are looking out at the world and making decisions about what they believe and how they live. They are operating by faith. When we use the word unbelief here, what we're talking about is they are not believing in Jesus as he is. They're believing something else. You want to talk about the power of unbelief? Unbelief will make you deny truth in the full face and body of all evidence. You want all the evidence that you need? They had Jesus right before them. And they're going to, nah, I'm good. Who's heard these words in scriptures? Jesus said, you will die in your unbelief. Or, you know, we all know John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Right? For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. Goes on to say that those that don't believe are condemned already. Sitting on his son to condemn the world. The world through him might be saved. For the world was condemned already. He says he could do no mighty work there. Those that don't believe are condemned already. Or how about this in John where it says this is the work of God that you believe. Nothing screws up your life more but not believing who God is, believing his word, and walking in it. Uh, my life verse, Matthew um, 22, 29, says, Jesus answered and said to them, You err because you don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. Every error in your life and my life comes down to the fact that we don't know God's word and we don't trust God and believe God in his power to keep his own word the way it is. We think somehow we're the exception of the rule. He says he could do no mighty work there, but he healed just a few. I, and then he goes to the next town. I wonder this. How much have we missed out on because we didn't believe? How much? How, how few mighty works have we gotten to experience in our lives because we won't believe? Because our faith is small, our, our hearts are hardened, our ears are dull, our eyes are blind. How much have we, we missed? And he'd go to the next town. I think that the, him coming to Nazareth is a picture of him coming to the world. 
It says that Jesus came to his own and his own received him not. Jesus said the way is narrow and few find it. Only a few. He came to his own and they rejected him. And only a few found it. Here's the last thing and then I think we're, I think we're about done here. The thing I love about Jesus is that he took your rejection and my rejection on himself. Jesus was rejected at his birth. He came to an inn and there was no room for him. He was rejected by Pharisees and a rich young ruler. We can flip back a couple pages. He was rejected by his family. He was rejected by his hometown. He was rejected by the political leaders. Jesus was rejected by his inner circle. He had him a Judas that rejected him. And he even had of his closest friends, Peter, that rejected him. Jesus was ran out of town even, what, like two chapters ago? Jesus is laughed at last chapter. He's questioned. He's accused. He's misrepresented. He was rejected at the end of his life for a murderer Barabbas. Jesus, if nothing else, we could say was a life that dealt with rejection. Beloved, the power of this is that Jesus took the rejection we deserve from sin from God. He took it onto himself that we might be, here's the word, accepted. That we might be accepted. The cure for being crippled by rejection is understanding that you are accepted by God. The gospel of Christ's life, death, and resurrection accepts us before our Creator in a way that it drowns out the rejection of man. If you can be accepted by Him who is greater, then the rejection of them who are lesser doesn't matter. I'll say it in every way that I can. To be loved is to be wanted and to be accepted and to be rejected is the opposite of that. Like church, in Christ Jesus, God has loved you. He was despised so that you may be loved. He was rejected so you might be accepted. He was kicked out so that you might be welcome. He was put to death so that you might have life. That's the gospel. Let me pray for you. All across this room, I don't know um, if it was the job you they fired you at. I don't know if it was the family that you didn't fit into. I don't know if it was um, the relationship that went south. I don't know who abandoned you. I don't know who rejected you. But in the gospel of Jesus Christ, God wants you to know that He loves you. And by faith, He accepts you. That if you can get a hold of that, it'll dismantle all the power that rejection has over you. You can be free. I don't know what invisible group appears from high school you're still trying to prove things to. I don't know. I don't know where this hits, but would you, would you just take a moment with the Lord? Before I pray for you, would you just take a moment for the Lord? Maybe just, just go there. Whose approval are you seeking? Who is it that 
If they don't clap for you, your life will feel like a failure. Maybe if you're a Christian in here, you go back to the gospel truth that we are accepted in Christ Jesus. That He loves you. He wants you. He came for you. He died for you. He conquered hell for you. Ain't nobody loved you like the Lord Jesus loved you. Dear Heavenly Father, we enter your courts with thanksgiving and your presence with praise. We thank you for teaching us that we are so accepted that we can overcome the rejection of the world. Father, we confess what your scripture says, that if we're hated, we know that it, the world hated you first. And that suffering, adversity, rejection is a part of your plan for our walk and our calling. God, would you make us brave and courageous in ways we are not naturally so that we might be faithful under rejection and that we wouldn't buckle or cower when people push back, when people leave us out, when people cut us off. God, some of us have sinned for decades and got a criminal record, a track record, a broken record of sin. And we've ruined our reputation with friends or family or our hometown or others we work with. God, would you give us the kind of um, steadfastness that can walk 20 years in righteousness to earn maybe a, just a hearing with some of those that we've burned bridges with? Give me, Father, from my brothers and sisters in here carrying around the baggage of wounds of rejection that has caused them to lose trust in other people, to lose trust in you, God, would you um, substitute that rejection with a gospel-saturated acceptance? Be medicine to wounded souls, God. Father, for my brothers and sisters in here that are maybe um, weighed down with unbelief, they have bought into the lie They've mingled the world with your truth just enough that they're paralyzed. God, would you rescue us from alternate beliefs and give us um, holy faith in all that Jesus is and all that he's called us to do. Father, we come worshiping you who was despised for us, rejected for us, put to death for us, that we might be accepted, welcomed, and made alive. We worship you with all that we are, and um, I pray this in Jesus' name. Everyone said, Amen. 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 Would you stand and let's, let's respond in praise, would you?